Hey, Scott here with Grace Bible Church. Before we get into this message, I just wanted to thank you for streaming this sermon. We pray that each week you are challenged by who God is and what he has done for you. Now, this is never meant to be a substitute for you to be an active member of a community of faith. If you live in the Hollidaysburg area, or if you're in town for any reason, we encourage you to gather with us on Sunday mornings for our word and worship. You can learn more about what God is doing through our church body on our website, gbclive.org. It's our second time around this morning on the resurrection, greatest topic in all of scripture. Um... Not because I say so, but because the Lord says so, because Paul says so. In our passage this morning, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says that this is the message of first essence in the gospel. He says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. I'll be uh, mentioning here in 1 Corinthians uh, in just a moment to start on that text. Uh, let me say something about the, uh, about before I start here on this topic. Uh, oftentimes when Christians witness or talk about the gospel, they wonder how to start a conversation, what way to get into it, and so on. But I want to remind you of something, and that is, even if you... Um, oh, sorry about that. Even if you do not know how to answer certain questions about Christianity... Uh, you know, you think about how wide and deep the Bible is and how many, how, how far questions can come uh, from it. And you think about questions about creation, questions about why God commanded the Israelites to wipe out the tribes in Canaan. You think about sovereignty, free will, uh, eternal security, end times. A lot of us are a little reticent to talk for fear that we might be asked questions that we haven't read in a certain area or some part, somebody might be a skeptic and so on. Keep something in mind. As long as Jesus was raised from the dead, as long as the truth of the gospel, which is usually defined as the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus, as long as that's true, everything else can be answered in its place or not. But as long as Christianity is true, Christianity is true. Think about that. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing truth. If Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for us, who was raised from the dead, then Christianity follows. In fact, I told the group this morning, in Scripture, almost every major doctrine and almost every major area of practice is said to depend on the resurrection. And almost 20 times in the New Testament, Believers are told that they will be raised from the dead because Jesus is raised from the dead. So somebody says, why, according to the scriptures, should I believe in an afterlife? I think by far the primary answer is because Jesus is raised from the dead. And if the resurrection is the center of our faith, we have Christ. And when you have Christ, in a way, all other questions are secondary. I mean, there's some pretty important questions there. But the truth of Christianity follows from the truth of this doctrine. So it's eminently important. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul begins, I paraphrase the first two verses, and then I'll start in verse 3. Paul says to the Corinthians, when I came to you folks, and we can tell, some people have said this is the most easily determined of any date in the New Testament. 
Paul went to Corinth about 51 AD. And we could tell, I mean, this is one of those examples where archaeology confirms scripture. But when Paul went to, the, uh, to Corinth to preach, we're told the name of the Greek who was what we would call the mayor of Corinth. And their terms only lasted one year. And so scripture says he was in charge and we've, there's a stone now that's been found that dates his becoming mayor as 51 AD. So we know that Paul was there from 51 to 52 that year. And he's writing this book shortly afterwards. So it's only about written about less than 25 years after the crucifixion. And I'm going to be doing a timeline up here all morning, so you're going to see how this fits in. But Paul's writing very, very early. This is just 45 years after the crucifixion, sorry, 25 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. And Paul says in verse 3, he says, I gave you, I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received. Now I'm reading from a Greek New Testament written by a, a Greek scholar, and he interprets of first importance. He interprets the primary principles of the good news. This is what I mean about the New Testament saying, this is the key. This is the center of the center. The primary principles of the good news. Paul says, I delivered unto you as a first importance about the gospel. And then he gives this early, it's an early creedal statement. He's repeating the statement that was originated, scholars think, before his conversion. In other words, when Paul is on the way to Damascus, this these verses, starting in verse 3, are already in existence, and he wasn't very happy with them. That's why he was persecuting Christians. And that creedal, that little statement says, he says, I gave you what I was given, and here are the words. He said that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, was buried, rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and appeared. And here comes the list, the longest list of continuous appearances of a list in the New Testament. It's also the earliest continued pass, continuous passage on the resurrection. And he says that Jesus appeared first to Peter, then to the 12. Then in this little passage, there's three groups, the, the 12, the 500, and a group called all the apostles, which is more than just the 12. And then two individuals, Peter and James, the brother of Jesus. We'll see in just a little while. These two individuals were unbelievers. Uh, not Peter, but Paul and James. They're all three are going to be together here in just a moment. And they were unbelievers until they met Jesus. Even Peter. Uh, Jesus says, depends on what, how you take the Greek, but Jesus says to Peter right before the crucifixion, when you are converted, strengthen the brethren. Now that, that word converted there can mean a couple uh, different things. But if it means salvific, that means all three of them. Paul, Peter, and James, who are together in this creed and are going to be together in person right after Paul's conversion, that uh, they might all have come to Christ after the fact. Certainly James and Paul did. So this is a, a passage, and Paul is playing the role of an historian. Now let me tell you a little bit about Paul. Paul was a Pharisee, and uh, Josephus, an early Jewish historian, tells you what pharisaical training was. And Josephus said no, because Josephus was a Pharisee. And they were the conservatives 
in the uh, Jewish governing body in Jerusalem. The Sadducees were the quote-unquote liberals. Sadducees, scripture tells us, they did not believe in angels or afterlife, and they pretty much thought the Old Testament was concerned with the first five books of Moses. But the, the Pharisees, we have a list from Josephus of what was accepted as scripture. It's a pretty interesting uh, list because it's the same books we have. It, it amounts to the same books. I say amounts. I mean, sometimes it'll say the books of Chronicles. Well, we have two. Uh, Book of Kings, two, uh, and so on. Samuel, First and Second Samuel. So when you count them, there's the Old Testament books, and then the New Testament hasn't been written yet. So Paul's a student of the scriptures, the Old Testament, and he was not very happy when Christians came to town and started preaching the gospel because he thought it was heresy. And I said that the gospel was the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus proclaimed before uh, the Sanhedrin, the, the governing body of the Jews, and he proclaimed in Mark 14, 61 to 63, I think it's probably the strongest text in scripture in the deity of Christ, because four things are said there. And the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Which is like saying to interpret, are you the Christ? That's, that's Greek for Messiah. That's the equivalent of the Hebrew Messiah. The son of the blessed one. Uh, Jews preferred not to mention God's name. And so he says, the son of the blessed one. And Jesus answered, now he's answering in Greek, but, but everyone thinks that Jesus and the disciples spoke Aramaic, which formed Hebrew. And the New Testament is translated, the New Testament is given in Greek because that was the, the language, the public language of the Roman Empire. But it, so he, Jesus would be speaking Aramaic, but he answers in Greek. He says, ego me, I am. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? I am. And henceforth, you'll see the Son of Man. Now, I often tell my students, you know, the, the high priest could have stopped him right there and said, whoa, 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 whoa. I ask you, Son of God, you answer Son of Man. You're the Son of Man. I'm the Son of Man. Everyone's the Son of Man. And that's the way it's used in the book of Psalms. Son of Man means a human being, a male son of a male and female uh, couple. But in Daniel 7... Son of Man is used a different way. And it's used as a pre-existent divine figure who's coming down from heaven from God. Now, it's not God, because in Daniel, the Father, because in Daniel 7, he's called the Ancient of Days, and he sends the Son of Man to earth to found his kingdom. And Jesus said, I'm the Son of Man. Son of Man is as high a, high a, uh, a title for deity as Son of God is. And... So the high priest said, are you the son of God, ego me, the son of the blessed one? And he says, henceforth you'll see the son of man coming on the clouds. In the Old Testament, coming on the clouds is a prerogative of God alone. There were no jet planes. And in the Old Testament, God rides the clouds on the, with, with the angels. And it's a very lofty thing and only God does it. And Jesus claims to come on the clouds. And then he says, and you'll see me sitting on the right hand of God. And that's kind of a, whoops, he went too far. You can claim to be the Messiah because that's anointed. And the Old Testament, anointed one, who, who got anointed? Prophets, priests, and kings. 
So kings weren't the son of God. They weren't deity. You could be something very exalted. You could be like that, but you're not necessarily. Okay, so he said, ego me. I am the, the uh, Messiah, whatever. You know, you're bugging me, but keep going. And he says, coming out of the clouds, and now it's getting worse because only God does that. And he says, henceforth you'll see me seated on the right hand of God. And most scholars think that's where he crossed the line because he claimed to be able to share God's throne. And it's heretical for a human being to claim that they are gonna sit on God's throne. And the high priest tears his garment, which is a, which is a public indication of, of uh, in this case, blasphemy. And he says in Sanhedrin, uh, basically, I think what he's saying is, I got him. Because remember, they had other witnesses coming up, but he wasn't impressed with the other witnesses, the high priest. But then it was, I think he thought it was sort of a mano a mano. He, you know, Jesus had been blistering all his guys when he went out there in the field trying to debate with them, and Jesus really put them all in their place. And as a high priest, he goes, uh, we're going to go at this. And yeah, he uncovered firsthand that Jesus claimed to be deity. So he probably thinks, I got him. This is blasphemy. That's, that's my purpose is to find this out. And Jesus is simply telling the truth. And what we get from it is the strongest, I think, proclamation that he's the son of God and uh, deity. And sitting on the right hand of God. In, in, the early, in the early church, there was a very high view of Jesus taught immediately after the crucifixion. And these are about the three things you could do that were considered the most blasphemous. Number one, I already told you, seat on God's throne. Number two, claim to be preexistent. Now, Jesus is born of Mary, but he said he was preexistent, going all the way back. And uh, also to claim or to accept worship. Worship, preexistent, and sit on the God, hand of, right hand of God. Jesus did all of them. And so he was in trouble with these folks. And we know the story. He was eventually crucified by the Romans. So Paul's telling the story here, and he says he died, and he was raised from the dead. What I'm going to do is pace off a timeline up here for you. And I'm going to start over here. And this is going to be ground zero, 30 AD, which is the most common date given to the, the crucifixion. That's creation. That's 2022. And we're going to be doing a little a timeline here that lasts about, goes about 65 years from Jesus to the date of the last of the four Gospels. And what we're doing is a, a little bit of a history lesson. In fact, it's interesting because Paul claims to be doing a little bit of a history lesson when he's doing this. We'll see about that in a moment. But in order to do history, you need a number of things to make a reliable historical report. But maybe the two most important are early eyewitnesses. Early eyewitnesses. If you're, if you're a reporter, you want to be on the scene. If you're an army correspondent, you want to, you, want to, you know, in, in our, let's take the, the war in Ukraine. You want to be embedded with the troops and be given reports. It's dangerous, but you're in the front lines. That's important. That's the price we pray for early eyewitnesses. And we, it, they're reported every day on the various channels um, on the news. And so early eyewitnesses would be great. And we know early eyewitnesses is not infallible, but what would you rather have? Would you rather have very late non-eyewitnesses? I don't think so. We want the best we can, and history is based on early eyewitnesses. So we've got these in Scripture, and I want to show you how. Jesus 
is crucified, let's take that year, most common year, 30 AD, and when you ask a Christian, if somebody asks you in a witnessing situation, how would you know that Jesus was crucified at this time? I mean, that's important enough, but how do you know that he was raised from the dead? I think the average Christian would say, well, let's go down here a little bit, and about 40 years after Jesus died, we've got the Gospel of Mark. Now, that's really short in the ancient world, as we'll see in just a moment. Mark writes about 65 or 70 AD. 70 would be plus 50. Sorry, 70 subtract 30 would be plus 40 after the cross. 35 if it's 65 AD. Matthew is usually placed by critics now. I'm using the facts the way the critics use them to show you that even with their data, we get a resurrection. Evangelicals usually put Matthew in about the 60s, but critics say about 80. It makes really no difference, doesn't change anything. Luke, about, 60, about 85, or subtract 30, 55 years later. And John is the last gospel, and everybody dates John at about 95, or subtract 30, just 65 years after the cross. And critics will, who, who I think don't know any better, I don't mean critical scholars, I mean the kind you might confront at work who call themselves scholars, they've read a few things on the internet, and um, you know they're going to tell you what all these things mean. And the critics don't like these guys. They think these guys just shouldn't speak about things they don't know what they're talking about. I mean, I'd give you a lot of examples of that. But they'll say, well, this is 65 years later. Nobody can remember things 65 years later. That's a bunch of baloney. So when I'm doing this lecture, I didn't do it this morning. But uh, do a little experiment for you. How many of you are here today? And you could remember something, maybe very clearly, that happened 65 years ago. That's going to let a lot of you out. But how many of you remember things from 65 years ago, and you're sure you could tell the facts which happened in that event? How many of you, 65 or later? There's a fair number of hands up, about a dozen. And I know there's a lot of people who don't want to be identified with being able to say things from 65 years ago. And, but, but they're alive. And usually, what things do you remember? Things that are really, really key, like maybe the death of a parent or a best friend. The most important person in my life died when I was eight. Well, I remember things like that. Uh, it could be a wedding. It could be your first, chi first child. It could be every child. You remember being on the scene when it happened. Um, my wife died in 1995. You remember the death of a spouse for sure, like it was yesterday. And 1995 is 27 years ago. And that would be like the first of the books here. This would be a little bit later than that, against that date. We can remember those things. And you can be an eyewitness to those events. They can be very important. But when people say this is way too late to make a difference, first of all, it's not true. You saw the hands right in here from people who can remember things very clearly. And maybe you have certificates in your file that say that, or, or a newspaper article, that say that these are a police report that says that these things happen just as you remember them from this time, uh, an obituary, and so on. Well, we have that for the Gospels too, but how does that compare to other secular or religious uh, books, reports? For example, probably the best person, known person in the ancient world up until, let's say, the time of Julius Caesar, 
in the Roman Empire was probably Alexander the Great, born 300 years, 300-ish years before Jesus. Alexander the Great, a young man who in his 20s had conquered the world and probably the most brilliant general ever to live. And his reports to this day, when we write about Alexander, there were eyewitnesses who wrote the reports of his military exploits and what he did, but they don't exist today. Now, if they're found, they'll be very, very valuable, but we don't have these. The earliest source we have for Alexander, it extended, you know, I don't mean a line here or something, but I mean a, a, a book, a biography, was written almost 300 years after Alexander died. If the first gospel, Jesus dies in 30, if the first gospel, instead of being um, a mere 35 years later or 40 years later, was 300 years later, critics would have grounds to complain because there's no early eyewitnesses around. How about Alexander? The best sources for Alexander are Plutarch and Arian writing 425 to 450 years after he died. In other words, almost half a millennium. How many of you would remember things from 500 years ago? Uh, not many takers. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a secular example. I have a Buddhist, uh, a book by a Buddhist scholar on my shelf, and uh, he's a PhD, British professor, until he passed away. One of my friends studied with him at a British university. And this fellow wrote a book called The, the Buddhist Scriptures. And he says, the Buddhists have more scripture than any other religion. So I try to pick the best examples and put them in this volume. He said, now let me tell you something. He starts like this on the very opening of the book. He says, we don't have what you Christians have. He starts like this. You Christians have the words of your Lord. We don't. You have the words who studied under your Lord and those who studied under them. We have neither. You know what your Lord taught. We don't know what our Lord taught. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, we do not even know what Buddha taught. And he said, the sources in this book are almost all 600 to 800 years after Buddha was born. That's almost tripled the distance from Alexander to Alexander's death. Death, not birth. And so when people tell you this is too long to talk about the gospel and the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, I mean, you know, who remembers things for 65 years? That's silliness compared to these examples of Alexander, Buddha. I could go on. Buddha's actually a pretty good example. Some of the other major religious founders, we don't have sources less than a thousand years. And one of them, we don't have a source until 4,200 years later. That is a long, long time. How could you be hurt? How could you be sure when it says this guy said X, Y, Z? How could you be sure of that 4,200 years later? When the Buddhist professor tells you, we don't even know what Buddha taught. Well, then why are you a Buddhist? Because they think that Buddhism teaches timeless principles and the principles they teach, not the history. Christians think it's very important not just to have the citations, but to have data. Christians are interested in information. 
And that's what we're doing here. By the way, I was doing this once in a church. And sometimes I get a little carried away. And I, I say, well, if John is here, how far after the fact is Buddha? And I'll go down a row in a big church and come around this way and come down front and say, yeah, this is about the time how far Buddha is, or Alexander is, even, after Jesus. One time I was going on a large sanctuary, and the door was straight ahead. And I went all the way over to the end of the door, and we weren't 325 years away from here. So I opened the door and went out. The door locked. <laughs> and they had to come lock me, let me back in the sanctuary. But it's a, it's a long time when you compare these sources to, to Jesus. Now, what I'm going to do is show you how early our sources are. Mark starts here. And if Mark's 65, that's plus a mere 35 years. Okay, how many of you remember things from 35 years that you're sure you were present? A wedding, the birth of a child, and so on. How many of you from 35 years later? Now, look at that. Dozens of hands. That's easy. All right. Let's see how fast, how far, we can get this back to the crucifixion of Jesus. Okay, so Jesus is born right here. What happens after he's born? Well, I'm sorry, I said he's born. He dies right here. He's gonna, it's not going to be very long before he's going to be born, but he dies right here. Now, this is traditionally a, Saturday, a Friday, but Saturday was a dark day. Uh, you've got the male disciples talking about, should we go fishing again? Uh, should we go tax collecting? I just don't know what I'm going to do. This happened really quickly. And they said, man, for three and a half years, I've, I've, I've been back home a bit, but I've, been, I've left my family. Um, I've traveled as an itinerant. We've lived outside. We had rocks for pillows. We got rained on. We've been doing that for three and a half years because this man was so great. And now he's gone. And it's a depressing despair of a day on Saturday. And then briefly after, we read the verses today from uh, Luke. The women go to the tomb. The tomb's empty. But you know what's interesting? When the women come back and tell the disciples that the tomb is empty, and they saw angels who said Jesus was risen, did you notice that in Luke 24, 11? The disciples don't believe. Doubt is a major topic today, but I mean, it's right in Scripture, too. And the disciples didn't believe the women. They thought, it says they thought they were spreading gossip. The literal word is they thought they were spreading idle tales. So Peter and John run to the tomb, and uh, they see that it's just what the women said. But tombs can be open for a lot of reasons. And they didn't right away say, oh, he's raised. They went away scratching their heads. What does this mean? But on Sunday night, they found out because Jesus appeared. And as one atheist New Testament scholar says, from that time on, the disciples proclaimed the resurrection and turned the world on its ear. That's an atheist New Testament scholar. Once the message of the resurrection came out, see, there's no other religion like that. No resurrection, no religion is founded on the resurrection. In fact, there are no resurrection uh, statements about any of the major founders of the world religions. There's nothing like this. Well, anybody can say anything. All right, well, let's, let's take a look at the data. So Jesus dies. He's raised in a couple days. 
Now, there's a character here named Paul, and he's trained as a Pharisee. He's a scholar. I guess you can think of him as kind of a scholar-athlete because he's not just a scholar. He's going to be the one who's, who's nominated to go out and, and uh, kind of be a ringleader and bring all the Christians back. And we don't know that Paul killed anybody, but he held the cloaks for those who stoned Stephen. And later he said he was the one that would catch the Christians, bring them in, and he would testify against them at their trials to their death. So we don't have any word that know that he killed them, but he testified to them, about them, to their death. He was very serious about his unbelief. And then if this is when Jesus appeared, and this is when Paul is persecuting, Paul comes to the Lord, uh, according to every commentator, liberal and conservative, either two or three years later. So by two to three years after the cross, Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, and three years after that, he goes up to Jerusalem. So we're just, we can do the math. Here's the cross. Paul becomes a Christian either two, this is the only iffy thing, whether it's two or three. Then he tells us three years later, he went up to Jerusalem. This is, at, this is Galatians chapter one. Critics accept this, this uh, passage unanimously. Paul goes up there and he said, I spent 15 days with Peter and James. Now, now Paul's a scholar and he knows how to do research. And if you're going to go to find the origin of something, you go back to Jerusalem and you go to those who were disciples. It makes sense that he would go to the co-pastors of the church of Jerusalem, James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter. Now, now these are interesting characters. I already talked about Peter that when you are converted, strengthen the brethren. Was Peter a believer? Probably was, but it's hard to know how to take that verse when you are converted. James was not a believer. In fact, Mark 1, Mark 6, John uh, 7 are very clear, and critics accept these passages. They don't accept all the verses of the New Testament for sure, but the ones that are evidence, they accept them. They believe that James was an unbeliever, John 7, 5 says it pretty clearly. The brothers of Jesus did not believe in him, John says. In fact, in Mark 3 and Mark 6, when Jesus comes to town, the townspeople thought Jesus was mentally ill. The Greek word is, it's translated in English, beside himself, like two minds, like schizophrenic. And the family apparently bought the criticism because they tried to get Jesus out of the public view. You know, my guess is, come on, you're embarrassing us. We got to live here. You don't. You're leaving town. We've got to do our business here. How are we going to get any more customers for carpentry or whatever they did at that time? And, and they didn't want Jesus around. So Paul goes there at plus six at the latest, maybe only plus five if he was converted to plus two. He's there at plus five. He spends 15, year, uh, 15 days with, with Peter and James. If I were Paul, here's the first question I would ask. Hey, fellas, let's exchange some testimonies. If you will tell me what it was like, how stunned you were when on Sunday night you saw the risen Jesus, what difference did it make when a day earlier you were ready to go back to your jobs and this whole charade for three years was over? What did it look like when you first saw Jesus? You know, there's a popular song in the 80s. Maybe you remember it. It was 
popular uh, gospel song, and it's called He's Alive. And in the song, it's told from Peter's viewpoint. And Peter says, I denied I knew his name. When I had an opportunity to witness, I denied I knew his name. And then Peter in the song says, even if he were alive, it wouldn't mean a thing. Because I'm a loser. At least for me, it wouldn't mean a thing. I'm a loser. I blew it. And then he says all the gates and doors were locked. John tells the disciples were inside for fear of the Jews. And Peter says, we were all inside. The gates and doors were locked. Someone came to the door. We thought it was Mary. Um, and we, we, we let her in. But while they were in the room there, all of a sudden there was an eerie feeling. And we all looked around. And Jesus stood in the middle of our midst. Now, Peter in the song had already said, even if he were alive, it wouldn't mean a thing. Because I denied him. But then he says, when I saw him... I fell down on my knees and I clung to him and cried. Now, notice the difference. It wouldn't make any difference if he were alive. Whoa, he's alive. And you just lose it and you fall down and you grab him by the legs and you hold him. I clung to him and cried. And what's the first thing Peter says when he realizes Jesus? He says, He's alive, he's alive, he's alive. Heaven's gates are open. He basically said, I've been accepted. Because he's alive, I'm on the path to heaven. And we wonder how these fellas were shot out of a cannon after this happened. Something happened where they went out. Just 50 days later, the first Christian sermon is preached. At Once Jesus leaves, Peter preaches on Pentecost. And thousands of people come to the Lord. Next few days, several thousands of people come to the Lord. Why that big bombastic cannon shot out this way would go like this. Why like this? Because the greatest event in church history happened. And these folks, men and women alike, uh, the women, by the way, the women are never called disciples in the Gospels. Only the men are. However, it's very clear that there were female disciples of Jesus. In fact, three of them gives their names. Three of them... It says they supported his ministry out of their own pocketbooks. They supported his ministry. You know the old question Campus Crusade used to ask? What would you say if you were standing before God? You, you died and you're standing before God and God asks you, what have you done that I should let you into the kingdom? How would you like to be one of those three women and answer the question this way? Well, I'm kind of, um, I, I, I don't want to be cocky about this. I want to be humble, but um, we paid for your son's ministry. <laughs> It's like, whoa, you paid for his ministry. Who has more reward? You know, who's done more than that? And they were some of the women who had followed him around and who end up at the empty tomb that we already read about. So men and women, they're together, they're together. By the way, the 120 in the empty room, the empty room, the upper room, right at the ascension in Acts chapter 1, in that upper room, there's about 120 people present. Guess what? Mary and the brothers of Jesus are present. Their names are right there. So James is not a believer before, but by the time Jesus ascended, he's there. Here's one more little nugget for you. Why did John at the cross give, give his mother to, why did Jesus give his mother to John? Now it could be because John was the only disciple present. But some commentators have commented, 
James wasn't a believer even then. James could have been the head of the family if Joseph were, were dead and Jesus is now dead, just about. James could be the head of the family, but John gives Mary, Jesus gives Mary to John. That's a real insight. So maybe James was in the, in the fold right there, but he shows up just like 45 days later, 40 days later. Jesus is on the earth for 40 days, and just a short time after the ascension, he's in the upper room. So Paul's there. He said, guys, here's what happened to me. I'm on the way to Damascus. And I don't have to tell you what I was doing. I was persecuting the church. I'm not proud of it. But Jesus called me to be a disciple, and I answered, and I'm giving my life. Now, Peter and James, I've heard of your testimonies hearsay. I would like to hear you tell me yourself, what was it like for you on that Sunday, for you, Peter, and James, presumably a few days later, and you're all together there when the church starts in the book of Acts? I'd like to hear your testimonies. Wouldn't you like to, be a, to have been a fly on the wall when Jesus appeared to his brother? Would that have, or how about Peter, after Peter denied him three times? But I like the one to James. I mean, what would Jesus say? He'd go, bro, it's me. Take a look. I'm not making this up. What's James say? What's Peter say? Would that word be true? I fell down on my knees and I clung to him and cried. He's alive, he's alive, he's alive. Heaven's gates are open and we're being invited. These were bombastic and that's why it was a cannon coming out of the gates. Well, Paul's there with them and they're exchanging testimonies and Paul uses a word in Galatians chapter one, sorry, Galatians 1.18. And the word is hysteresi in Greek. Now Greek lettering is not our lettering, it's more like Russian and so on. When you, when you transliterate it into Greek, the Greek word hysteresi, the root word is, and you'll all get this, the root word is H-I-S-T-O-R. It's the Greek word from which we get our English word history. Now, I'm not saying it means Paul was playing the historian here, but he was checking things up. And the word hysteresi is usually translated to investigate, to interview, to get acquainted with somebody. Paul knew what he was doing. He was spending 15 days with them to ascertain the truth of the gospel because that's what the book of Galatians is about. It's a short book and it's all about the gospel. Now Paul says right after that, just a few verses later, that 14 years later, he said, I went back up to Jerusalem. Now the first New Testament book, it's pretty much unanimous. Almost all New Testament scholars think 1 Thessalonians is the first New Testament book written about 50 AD or plus 20. But Paul's up there just shortly below, before it, usually it's dated about 48. He goes to Jerusalem again in Galatians 2. And in Galatians 2, 2, Paul said, I, sat be, I set before the other apostles the gospel I was preaching to see if I was running or had run in vain. You go, what? Yeah, I, uh, Peter and James are there and I'm giving them the gospel since I've seen them last Barnabas and I have, you know, we've been out there in the world and we've seen a lot of people come to the Lord and I'm telling the gospel I was preaching, I want to make sure we're all on the same page. And somebody could, you know, you could say, 
Paul, you're the researcher. You took 14 years to check this out? And Paul says, yeah, I don't know who you are, but you're not following my argument very well. You're not tracking with me. Try, try to, you know, focus. He says, Jesus died. I was happy. I was converted. I was really happy. A lot of things happened in between. I was persecuting Christians. I saw Jesus myself, and I talked with him. That's step one of my research. Number two, I went up there to Jerusalem three years later. That's step two. This is the third time I've checked this out. You know, you don't get on a bus and go to Jerusalem if you live in Rome in those days. And the robbers who hid on the major routes, it, was, uh, uh, it wasn't just a quick trip. If you took a boat, we know about Paul being, the, you know, the, the storms and the boats sinking and so on. It was rigorous. And now he's made, he, this is his third time he's checking things out. And how did the other two guys, Peter and James, how did they respond? They're there again still in Galatians 2, 14 years later. They're still pastoring Jerusalem. And in English, five words, they added nothing to me. I told them I was preaching, and Paul tells you what it is right here, the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, and they added nothing to me. Now, just a few verses later in Galatians 2, 9, the church is laying hands on Paul and Barnabas. You know how we do to send missionaries out. It said they gave us the right hand of fellowship. Now, Think about that. I don't know if you folks send missionaries out here, or if you lay hands on them up in front before you or, uh, commission them to go out. Do you lay hands on heretics, at least knowingly? I don't know anybody who lays hands on heretics and sends them out to the mission field to more little, make more little heretics just like them. So if the disciples are laying hands on Paul and Barnabas, that means they've agreed on the nature of the gospel. And Paul sums this up in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 11, same chapter we're in, verse 11 says, whether you get it from them or whether you get it from me, we're preaching the same gospel. Well, you get that from Galatians 2 also. They're preaching the same gospel. And something else is going on here. Paul is here. Peter is here. James is here. One more person is named. Not the first trip, but the second trip John is here. Why is that significant? These are the four most influential Christians who ever lived. Two disciples, Peter and John, two kind of Johnny-come-lately disciples who are called apostles, Paul and James. They're all together, and they all agree on the gospel. Do you know what benefits from that? We have a lot of denominations today, usually because we, dis we disagree on, on periphery things eschatology, the age of the earth. I'm not saying all that's periphery, but, but a lot of it is. And we allow other, we don't call somebody a Christian, a non-Christian because they disagree with us on, you know, periphery items. But on the gospel, if you say Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you're not one of our fellowship of churches. But unless you believe in the deity, death, the resurrection, and other things, you're a part of it. And they've agreed right here. I think this is a fantastic set of events in Galatians 2. Galatians back up, Galatians 1. Paul says he came to the Lord. He, all these things. And you can do the math. Cross, 2, 
to three years later. Paul comes to the Lord. Three years later, he's in Jerusalem, and they're all agreeing on the message. There are, folks, I'm telling you, I study religions for a, it's my, it's what I've done. I've been a professor for over 40 years. No other religion in the world, I'm not putting anybody down, but no other religion in the world has a resurrected founder. There's no resurrection even taught by them. And well, of course, you wouldn't believe in that. No, they don't teach it. They don't teach that. Nobody else has books that are this close. I mean, they're not even as close as John, let alone as close as Paul. Now, let me tell you one more thing. This is Thessalonians from just 20 years after the cross. We now know, and this is pretty recent news, that the Christians taught little creedal statements. They taught orally because us sociologists, New Testament sociologists believe that up to 90% of Jesus' hearers were illiterate. And with illiterate people, you teach, how do you teach ABCs to children who can't read? There's a lot of things you do, but sometimes what you do is you teach little ditties. You teach ABC. You know, we sing little songs, right? A, B, C, D, F, G, A is for the, B is for the, C is for the, and we teach alphabet, or we teach them little nursery rhymes. Jack and Joe went up the hill. Row, row, row your boat. Well, there are Christian, quote, unquote, nursery rhymes. Uh, for example, hymns. You could be five years old, never be able to write your name, and you could stand there in church if you're really sharp and you learned the words of the song. You could sing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I was found, and blind, but now I see. And not be able to write your name. So we teach folks these little tiny ditties. Well, these are all through the New Testament. They're, they read in Greek like da-da-da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da, like in stanzas. And 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and following is the most famous one. There are maybe, I don't know, maybe more texts published on the, on the importance of 1 Corinthians 15, 3 than there are in any other New Testament text. Here's another one. Back up. Four chapters. 1 Corinthians 11. You probably read this text several times. I don't know how often you have communion here. But 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 11 is the communion passage. And Paul says, he said, I gave you what I was given. Same thing he says to start out 1 Corinthians 15. I knew this material. This is a historical report, and I'm giving it to you. It's, it precedes me, but I'm giving it to you. He says that about communion. Only here he adds three words that are very important. I delivered unto you that which I also received from the Lord. And some people say Paul's citing these words go all the way back to what Jesus, which the Gospels also report, but the words that Jesus gave at that Last Supper. And, of course, we read Paul's report because it's probably the best-known one, and it's the earliest one. It predates the Gospels. Uh, how that Christ, he says here, die for your sins and so on. But there he said, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. He gave thanks, saying, this is my body which is broken for you. And he took the cup. And he said, this is the cup of the New Testament, my blood. I give this for you. I will not drink it again until in the kingdom. It's one of many predictions he made that he was going to die. You find him in Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, Mark 14. Over and over, Jesus predicted that this was going to happen. In these early creedal statements, you know, how, you know how early they date? Here's 1 Thessalonians. This beats anything in religions. That beats anything in religions from 65. This is 20. 
these creeds, critics now, critics think the creeds date starting just a year or two after the crucifixion. You want early eyewitness sources? Start here and work your way forward to 1 Thessalonians all the way down to the Gospel of John. I'm teaching a PhD course this summer for PhD students, Lord willing, starts in about two weeks. And the whole course, the PhD level, is on these creeds. That's how much material we have. How many there are, and each student in the class has to give, I only have a little bit of time for them to, to take for these. So they have 15 minutes to talk about one creedal text. It might only be two verses. But they're over and over again. How about Philippians 2? A lot of Christians believe Philippians 2 was an early hymn. They sung it. And by the way, it does some of those, what Paul would have thought was blasphemous too. Philippians 2, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Christ is on God's throne. And those verses are taken from Isaiah, where God says in Isaiah, I will not share my glory with any other. And it's being given to Jesus. It's a whole PhD course in these things, and they date from here. Folks, we have, nobody competes with us on data. Now, Christianity, the evidence is so good that it's been said. I just heard of a testimony where Lee Strobel said this recently. He said, I'm going to college campuses, and our students don't seem to care anymore what truth is. He said, we have evidence for the truth of the gospel, but the students on campus frequently ask, who cares? What difference does it make for me? How is it going to make, help me to earn a living? How is it going to put bread on the table? But nobody can compete on the fact side. It's been said just recently, I read this, Christians may have won the battle on facts. Nobody can compare. So now the question is, who cares? What does it mean for me? Well, let's talk about the pastoral. That's what you come to church for. You want to know what difference it makes to you. But what difference does what, what it is for you make if it's not true? But Christians and Jews, Jews have the same view of history as Christians do. That's the way Christians talk. Buddhists and others talk like the one I gave you earlier. We don't know what Buddha taught. Then what are you teaching? Well, the teachings that Buddha supposedly taught are timeless and true. And many of them are, are fine principles. If you read the Dao De Jing, the book of, of uh, in Chinese, uh, it's a combination of Buddhism and others, but Taoism, if you read th that volume, it reads like the book of Proverbs. I mean, it's not like it's bad or anything. It, there's a whole lot of worthwhile principles in there, a lot of other things that don't make any sense at all, but, but you can read them, and it's like ours, but they don't teach historical things that are true and false. They don't have sources like that. By the way, do you know the earliest forms of Buddhism? Earliest forms of Buddhism, Buddha was not a theist. He wasn't an atheist, but he wasn't a theist. He believed more like God was nature, kind of a pantheism. Theism means a personal God. And Buddha did not believe in a personal creator or a personal God. See, when you start learning these things, you know it, it's, it's just no comparison. All right, let's, let's draw this to a close. Paul ends this chapter, 59 wonderful verses, on the resurrection, and he, in verse 58, he says, first point, be steadfast in your faith. You should be. 
This age is just rife. I have two graduate students, one a PhD student, who takes all my doubt cases. People write to me, and it takes a long time to deal with doubters. They're usually emotional doubters, there's different species, and they're probably really strong Christians, but they just think they just, they're just in a lot of pain. And so I turn them over to these folks, and they counsel with them, and the first phone call often goes two hours. They're really, really hurting. First thing Paul says is, be steadfast. These doubters want to know there's something to believe for sure. And Paul says, you got it. It's a resurrection. 58 verses. Number two, he says, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I told the group this morning, what you do for Christ, according to Paul, according to the New Testament, what you do for Christ doesn't get you into heaven. But once you're in Christ by commitment. The word faith there in the Greek is a real strong word. I think it's very similar to our I do in marriage. It means a commitment. You don't just say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I'm one of those. But your life doesn't show it. When you believe in Christ, you follow him like the disciples did. All right, so, but after salvation, Paul said your labor in the Lord is not in vain. He's writing to Christians. Everything you do with Christ after salvation determines how much you will enjoy eternity. You ever think about that? I use that word enjoy on purpose. Because it's what the New Testament teaches. Everything you do with Christ before salvation, it might get you, I don't mean this facetiously, but it might get you fewer stripes in hell to use Jesus' example. Jesus says that, greater stripes, fewer stripes. But it doesn't save you. After salvation, everything you do for the Lord determines how much you'll enjoy eternity. Jesus said, to imagine this, Jesus said that a cup of water given his name will be rewarded. If a cup of water is rewarded, what about the day you give to the, the, the food drive for people in the city? Jesus said the second greatest command was loving your neighbors yourself. Only loving God is, is higher. It's the only two commands he ever numbered. And number two is love your neighbors yourself. Think about a day delivering food at Thanksgiving to people who don't have it, as compared to the blessings of a cup of water. Third thing he says is there's a future life. That's what comes from the resurrection. Be steadfast, be committed to your ministry, and your labor in the Lord is not in vain. If you back up a couple of verses, Paul is not speaking like a poet. He's not saying, oh, death. Where's your sting? Oh, grave. Where, he's not an actor. He's not a poet. Read commentaries. He's taunting death. He's getting in death's face. He's getting in Satan's face. And if you were to translate him, read some of the major commentaries, he's talking like this. Death, you got something for me? You've got nothing. You, you've got nothing. You're going down. What, what? Yeah, I know. I know you can hurt me. Haven't you ever seen my list? You've hurt me a lot. But you're going down. You've already lost your biggest weapon, death. It's been taken from you because you couldn't even guard the tomb. How's that, big boy? That's the way Paul's talking. Death, where's your sting? Grave, where's your victory? He didn't make this up. He's quoting the Old Testament. But now it comes to fruition because of the resurrection brought that the truth. So what, how personal it is for us folks that we should be committed, our labor's not in vain, 
we should go out of here seeking to lead others to the Lord and helping them to find the eternal life, which follows normally from the resurrection of Jesus. It is the greatest message in the world. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the surest way almost 20 times in the New Testament to our eternal life. Greatest message given to us, and we, you know, I live in a little lake. If I catch a big bass on my lake, the last time I caught a big one, <laughs> a long time ago, uh, when I catch a big one, I looked around, there was nobody on the shore, but I didn't care. I was going, whoa, whoa, I was holding this big guy up, and nobody was out there, and I was screaming. If I'm like that for a big bass, what should I be like to say, whoa, eternal life right here. Come here and find out, eternal life. How outspoken should we be if we're that loud, loud for our, our, uh, the team that wins the World Series, the Lombardi Trophy, the Stanley Cup playoffs going on right now? If we're that loud for the big bass, the deer, whatever, what about the resurrection of Jesus, that we should proclaim this to others? That's how great the resurrection is. It's our ticket to eternal life.